encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 4, um, 1 to 20. I'm just going to read it um, out now. Um, but just before I do, I'm just going to invite you to take kind of five or ten seconds um, just in, in quietness before God, um, because we're about to hear our God speak through the person of Jesus and through his word. Um, so if you just want to take a second with me and just say you ask God to open up your own heart, your own, um, your own life to having him speak um, directly to us. From Mark chapter 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. Um, so, yes, yeah, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about these parables. And Jesus said to them, To you who has given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? And then, will you, understand all, will you not understand all parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path. Where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and then they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others, the ones sown among the thorns, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But those that were sown in good soil are those the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning and um, welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at um, City Light and it's, um, it's good to be preaching this morning. And, um, and great to have Jacob and Sarah and River with us. Uh, it's been, uh, the, uh, River's been a great addition. If you didn't know, he was born on a leap year. And as soon as that happened, one of the members at 4pm said, 
Jacob's going to love that, and Sarah's going to hate it. And I can confirm, Jacob loves it. Sarah's not so sure about it. Um, but uh, this morning, we're actually, we really have two purposes in going through this section in Mark. Uh, as we mentioned earlier in the year, we'd keep you updated with how things were at Burwood. And so on Vision Sunday, we didn't say too much about where the year was going because we wanted to see what God was doing. Um, but this morning, we're going to be looking through this section in Mark because it's the section we're up to. But I'm also going to be laying out what we as a church are hoping to do this year going forward. And this passage is a particularly pertinent one because it's one where Jesus is laying out what it means to be a true follower of him. There are big crowds starting to follow him. If you've been with us week to week, you'll see that. That as we move through the Gospel of Mark, which is a biography of Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death and resurrection, that um, we will see that in the section we're up to, that Jesus has a growing group of people who are paying attention to his ministry and they're checking him out. They want to know what he's on about. And he's starting to discern, and particularly in this passage, who it is who is a genuine follower and who it is who's just a fan. I don't know if you keep along or follow along with the Batuta Advocate. Hopefully, if you do, you've worked out that it's a satirical newspaper. They're not real news stories. You would have been stitched up by that a few times. But there's a, there's a theme, if you've noticed, with a bunch of them that they tend to pick on. There's a couple of sports that they pick on, usually rugby union, rugby league, and AFL. Uh, but in those, there's a theme of picking on Swans fans. And the reason for picking on them, largely, is because they're considered to be fair-weather fans. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but a fair-weather fan is not someone who's a true fan. They're there for the good times, and then as soon as things become difficult, they disappear. But let me just read you an excerpt from one about a, what they call a disturbing trend of Balmainites. I thought that would be appropriate, given that we're here in the postcode of Balmainites defecting to AFL. In a shocking new trend, middle-aged men from Sydney are starting to pretend they know, love and follow AFL. With over seven professional rugby league teams in a predominantly league city, men who have previously supported a local NRL team are ditching their jerseys altogether, some of them ditching them for Guernseys. Young urban professional men make up the largest number of NRL fans migrating to the scarves and singlets of Australian Football League many claiming that they have followed the Swannies since day dot. One man who's as guilty as anyone is 41-year-old construction manager Peter Cody. Yeah, people put trash on me because I grew up in the rugby league hotspot of the inner west of Sydney. They just assume I live and breathe wests. What most of them don't know is that I'm a blood supporter till death. One of Peter's co-workers can see straight through the facade. Alan, a legitimate Victorian who moved to Sydney seven years ago, claims that Peter is just another bandwagon fan that got behind the Sydney Swans in the days leading up to their 2012 AFL Premiership. When I started here, Peter was a diehard Balmain fan, and he was reeling from their Premiership over the Cowboys in 2005, and he used to bang on about it that he played for them for juniors for years, as many middle-aged men do claim. I mean, the junior squads must just be epic, right? <laughs> But then he says, this lot in Sydney just save face by pretending that they're, they're an AFL state after losing Origin for 10 years in a row. He's such a loser, he doesn't know anything, constantly heckling me about Geelong. He doesn't even know who half the team are. And it goes on and on and on. But article after article pick on the fact that there are a bunch of Swans fans who aren't genuine fans. 
They, they just jumped in. Whenever the Swans are doing well, they jump in. As soon as they start losing, they become free agent fans. They disappear easily. They're not really in for the long haul. They're not genuine, authentic fans. Now, no one has like a page of criteria that outline when you can or can't call yourself a genuine fan, but there are some generally accepted attributes to it. That you're a one-team person, that once you support them, you never stop supporting them, no matter how bad or well they go, and that you're in it for the long haul. People seem to have an understanding that people who just come and go aren't genuine fans. They're not real followers. Well, Jesus in this passage, as the crowds are starting to gather to him in larger and larger numbers, has a way of talking in order to divide those who really want to know him, who really want to follow him, from those who are just interested in seeing a spectacle, from those who are coming just to be entertained. He has a way of speaking that's actually deliberately divisive, and it will draw those who follow him closer and push his opponents even further away. Jesus is not here just to be liked by everyone. He's here to speak the truth in love, and he's here to let people know by the way that he speaks whether they really know him or not. Because what's on the line matters. What's on the line is eternal life. And Jesus wants people to know where they stand with him. And so as we dig into this passage in Mark 4, I'm going to pray that we'd be able to listen. Whether you are here and hearing about Jesus for the first time, whether you've been a follower for a long time, whether you've been sitting in church gatherings or your family has been sitting in church gatherings for generations, Jesus' call to you this morning is, listen. And he says it over and over again. He says, listen, don't assume, listen to what I'm saying. Because he says, true followers hear his word and they multiply. I'm going to pray that we'll understand. Father God, we praise you that you sent Jesus to speak truth in love. We praise you that in you is hope and hope of life everlasting. And that in you we have all we need to know peace and joy and to know you, our Heavenly Father. And Father, we pray that as we open this parable that Jesus tells of the seed, that you would open our eyes and hearts to see what you are saying to us, and all for the glory of your name. Amen. So if you have tracked along with us since the beginning of the series, you will have seen this of Jesus so far. We've seen him baptized. He then starts to call followers to himself in a radical fashion. He just says to people, follow me, and they drop everything and follow him. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that in your life, but I haven't. Not only that, he's healed people, a paralytic, other illnesses, he's cast out demons, and he's gaining notoriety, so it's no surprise that at the beginning of the passage that Mark read out for us just before, it's no surprise what we read. Look at what it says. Mark 4, 1 to 2. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea, presumably the Sea of Galilee, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So he's here in the Sea of Galilee, and this becomes important next week as we look at a storm that whips up in this sea. But he's standing there by the Sea of Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, and the crowd is gathering, and it's so significant that he actually gets into what would be probably a small boat and pulls out a little way from the shore to create basically a moat between him and the people. Now, this isn't like a hygiene precaution or anything like that. This is so that people could actually hear him. Because while he's on the shore, they're gathering in too close and they can't actually hear what he's saying. And they're so piled up that he gets in a boat and pulls out from them. So he's now in the water, standing on a boat, 
speaking to this enormous crowd that have gathered to see him. And they've come from everywhere. Now, if you, if you were Jesus' PR agent, at this point in his career, you would be telling him to maximize and leverage the opportunities he's got. They'd be saying, hey, the hype around you is really building, right? Your Twitter is going off. Like your mentions and things are just going through the roof. People, are st- you've got a bit of mystery about you as well, so you've got that thing going on. You really, it's time to maximize this. Start bringing the crowds in. Say the things that are winding the people up. Do some miracles or that sparkly stuff. Everybody loves that Jesus. Get into that. Maximize it. But what he does is actually pretty confounding because what he does is the opposite. He gets up and tells a story that nobody understands. Look what he says, Mark 4, 3 to 9. Listen. So he says to them, listen, pay attention to what I'm saying. As if anyone's listening to anyone else. They've all traveled all this distance just to see him in a boat. But he says to them, listen, pay attention. He says, carefully pay attention to the story I'm about to tell you. Behold, a sower went out to sow. A little bit underwhelming for a start of a story, but you'll get into it. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said... He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a funny way to end. He starts by saying, listen. He finishes by saying, he who has ears to hear, which presumably they had, let him hear. And then he stops. That's it. This whole massive crowd have traveled from regions far away to hear what is this guy going to say. He gets up, talks to them about a farmer who carelessly just throws some seed around the place. It grows up, some of it makes it, some of it doesn't, and that's the end. What is going on here? Why is he speaking like this? If this is your first time in church, don't feel bad about the fact that you don't understand what this story is about. Nobody got it. Nobody understood it. He's speaking in a parable. It's a story that on the surface has one meaning, but when you look behind it, it has a deeper meaning. But look, I love what happens next. Look what happens next. So he tells this story to the whole crowd and whatever. And then in Mark 4.10, look what his disciples, his closest followers, come and say to him. They say, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. I love that. So he's there with the crowd, tells them this story about the seed, and they're all going, yeah, yeah, oh, that's so good, hey, yeah, 100%, Jesus. And then when they get alone with Jesus, they're like, uh, just ask him for a friend. Is, so what... Uh, What exactly does all that mean? They don't get it. Even his closest disciples did not get what this story was about. Now, if you've been in church for a while and you've heard the story and then heard it explained, it might seem reasonably understandable to you. But to be honest, to just hear that story, there's no way you're going to get it. There's no way you're going to get what he means. In fact, if you were from an agricultural society, you would hear that story and think, "This this is a warning about, you know, worst and best practice when it comes to farming. Because a farmer would not just go and just like throw seed like a maniac, some of it's landing on a path, they would carefully till the soil and lay it out so that it would actually grow. So for them, they'd be thinking, is he just giving us advice about how we do things? 
But his disciples come to them. They say, look, Jesus, we pretended to get it while everyone was around, but seriously, what does this mean? And then he says to them this, Mark 4, 11 to 12. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see and not perceive, and they may indeed hear and not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus says to them, for outsiders, for those who don't truly follow me, everything's in parables. That is kind of like in riddles. Nothing makes sense. But he says, for you, for you who want to know, the secret of the kingdom of God will be revealed. You'll understand the meaning of my ministry, of who I am and what I'm doing. But he says, I speak like this so that they, those who don't want to follow him, may be ever hearing but never perceiving, ever seeing but never understand. And he's quoting here the Old Testament. This was from Isaiah, who was a prophet, and his job was to go to Israel and to tell them, stop being terrible people, stop committing crimes, stop treating one another horrendously. God is watching. You will be judged. You need to stop knowing that no one was going to listen to him. And God commissions him and says, you're going to go and tell these people this stuff, and they're going to hear it, but they'll be ever hearing, never perceiving. He says, you're going to tell these people, and it's going to harden their heart. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I speak this way because I mean to divide. He says, the way that I speak in parables, for those who want to understand, they're going to do exactly what you disciples did. They're going to come closer and they're going to ask, what is this about? Because they know who I am and that they need to understand what I'm saying. But for his opponents, it's going to push them further away. It's kind of like this. Why, why do people use slang? Why do people use kind of slang language? Let me just test your, of, of just one particular type of slang, just let me test your understanding of Cockney rhyming slang. You're familiar with this? If you've seen any Guy Ritchie movie, you'll know about it. Um, but let me, just, let me just test if you've heard of these sort of things. If I'm talking about my Skyrocket, what am I talking <laughs> Is that a good one to start on? All right. Does anyone know what Skyrocket is? Maybe I should have said it that way. No? Yeah? It's your pocket. You know, it's that easy. What about... What about the dog and bone? Phone, thank you. Trouble and strife? The wife. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if they weren't before, they certainly will be after you use that term. (laughs) My china, china plate. Mate, yep. Butcher's hook. Did you say crook? You can get two for this one. You can say, I'm going to go have a bit of a butcher's, which is a look, a butcher's hook look. Or... Gab's away today, he's a bit butchers, because he's crook, right? Okay, so these are the kind of words that come through. Now, one of the questions in studies that they ask as they're, as they're you know, understanding this phenomenon of kind of slang languages, why do, why, do, why do groups use it? Why do people talk in a particular way? Don't they understand that it makes it harder for other people to understand them? When it comes to certain genres of music, like hip-hop, for example, whatever it is, why is it that people use language that's clearly going to make things more difficult? Why use 50 times as many syllables to describe something and make it all, you know, obtuse? Why, why would you do that? And the reason comes back again and again and again. When it comes to subcultures, one of, the, one of the things that subcultures always do is have ways of communicating who's in and who's out. If you speak like this and other people understand you, you're in. You're one of us. You get it. And if you want to be in, you better start understanding how we speak. And if you're not us, yeah, it's infuriating, isn't it? You don't get what we're talking about. And all kinds of groups and subcultures use it. It's a way of defining, just casually, who's in and who's out. 
Why does Jesus speak in parables? He wants people to know who's in and who's out. Who's here to see a spectacle? Who's here to see a show? And who really wants to follow Jesus? Who really wants to know what this guy is on about? Jesus speaks this way purposely to keep insiders in and outsiders out. He's here to do this to draw those who want to follow him even closer in as they say, Jesus, what is it that you're talking about? We know you have words of eternal life. I want to understand it. And for those who want to dismiss him to have even more reason to say, this guy's out of his mind. He just talks in weird parables. Nobody gets what he's on about. You might have heard the phrase that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Jesus' parables have that very effect. For those who want to follow him, it draws them even closer and they listen even harder. And for those who want to dismiss him, they dismiss him even more. True followers will do what his disciples do and draw closer to understand. But for people who just come in to see a spectacle, they're like, well, I don't really get what he's on about. And for people who outright oppose him, they say, see, he's a weirdo. He speaks in weird parables and all his weirdo followers think that he's profound and they just leave him alone. Now you think, why would God do this? I mean, Jesus in the flesh is God. Why would God speak in this way that's so divisive? It is true that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It's true that he has come to bring forgiveness to all. And no matter what you have done or no matter what you have, how you have sinned, Jesus says, I will forgive you. But he's not going to beg you for the opportunity to do it. If you want to reject Jesus, if you want to reject the Son of God coming to die on your behalf, you can. He's not going to beg you for the opportunity to forgive you. He will speak and he will have you listen. And if you want to know him, you can know him truly. But if you're only interested in seeing a spectacle or following for a bit, he'll give you ample cause to dismiss him. True followers listen, is what Jesus is saying. And that's why he goes on to explain the parable to his true followers. Look at what he says in Mark 4, 13 to 20. As he continues on, it says, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? As if anyone did. I like, he's just winding them up. Isn't it? Oh, don't you guys even get it? Oh my gosh, all right. And then he says, How then will you understand all parables? He says, The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path. Where the, word, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown on the ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the other desires for things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and even 100-fold. Jesus says, this is actually a parable that's going to help you understand all the others. It's going to show you that people are going to have different responses to me. They're going to hear the same word, the same preaching, the same message, and yet their responses are going to be vastly different. For the first response, Jesus says there are people who are going to hear Jesus. He's going to explain to them what he's on about, that he is God on a mission to save lost sinners. And he says they're going to hear it, and immediately they'll reject it. This is the response that hears the gospel message and says straight away, that's not for me. I'm not that type of person. I don't, really, I don't think that's really what life is about. Whatever it is, this is the one who hears and rejects quickly. And here Jesus says that there's actually a, a supernatural element to this. 
It says Satan here takes away the word. Now, he's not saying that, that someone would be a, a willing follower and trying to understand the word of God, and then Satan just comes and bends their will against themselves. No, Satan's described as the father of lies, and his power is deception. And so it's someone who hears the gospel message, and hears an alternative, and buys into the lie. It's a response that on the surface might seem merely intellectual, but has deep supernatural implications. It's more significant than just intellectual disagreement. This is a rejection of Jesus. He's saying this will be some people. As I speak the word, they'll hear it and immediately really reject it. The second one is more unsettling though, isn't it? If you're someone here who claims to follow Jesus, the second one is slightly more unsettling. Because Jesus says there are some who are going to respond to the word with joy. That is, they'll hear it and they'll be like, this is the best. Where has it been all of my life? And they'll immediately seem to kind of grow and, and follow Jesus and with joy and yet ultimately are not true followers. He says that at the first moment that they face difficulty or persecution or tribulation or trouble of any kind, as soon as following Jesus starts to bite into their lifestyle, they're going to walk away. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, you will have witnessed this, sadly. May, you, may, you might be the exception, but as you look back, if you were someone who did beach missions back in the day or part of a youth group, if you've been in the church over a long period of time, there'll be many accounts of people who came, who seemed to be just so passionate for Jesus and then walked away from him almost as quickly. And even as I'm saying it, sadly, there are probably faces or names coming to mind. What Jesus said 2,000 years ago is still true. There'll be some who hear it, respond with joy, seem to be regenerate, and yet aren't. Discipleship is a long haul. The moment they see that following Jesus is going to make a call on their lifestyle, on their sexuality, on whatever it is, they say, that's it, I'm, I'm out. I didn't sign up for this. And Jesus is warning his disciples, he's like, this will happen. But the third response, if you're someone who's called yourself a Christian for any amount of time, is probably the one that deserves the most attention. The third response is that Jesus says there is, there is a type of seed that will go in, and it grows. And it seems to be that he's talking over an extended period of time, because the metaphor in this is that slowly weeds are growing around the plant, until eventually they start to choke it out. And with this, Jesus says specifically that it will be prosperity and busyness. He says the love of money, the deceitfulness of money, and the desires for other things, the desires for worldly things or other priorities, just slowly over time will do it. See, Jesus says the deceitfulness of riches here because greed isn't like other sins. There's not a line that you crossed where you go from being not greedy to greedy. There's a whole spectrum. And it takes decision after decision and step after step over time. It's a slow process. He says there's a deceitfulness that encroaches on the heart, shade after shade, until it is fully blackened. See, with murder or sexual sin or something like that, you, you know that you're doing it. But with greed, it can, you can deceive yourself into thinking, this is just, I'm just making wise decisions. I'm just making smart decisions. And Jesus is saying that there will be some who seemingly follow him, but over time, by a thousand different decisions, not one single decision to rebel against Jesus and say, I reject Jesus, 
But the, the sum total of a thousand small decisions will add up to rejection of Christ. It starts with valid desires, not something bad, just wanting security or being responsible with finances. That leads to certain jobs, that then leads to certain promotions, that then leads to certain hobbies in order to cope with how demanding this job is, that then leads to longer holidays to cope with the, the lack of time then spent with everyone throughout the year because of that. And then over years after years of doing this, of squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, eventually they just stop being fruitful, either in their personal life or in reaching out to others, and they bear no fruit, and they are the third soil. Jesus says, watch out, pay attention, look at what's going on in your heart. Because his caution then at the end is, be the good soil. Look what it says in Mark 4.20. It says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and even 100-fold. His encouragement is that there will be those who hear, they accept his word, and they bear fruit. To accept God's word means to accept what he says. It's to agree with God. Repentance, as one uh, theologian has said, means agreeing with God. Is to agree with God on his verdict that I'm a sinner. Is to agree with that Jesus was a sufficient sacrifice for my sin. Is to agree that I was raised to new life in him. And it's to say to God, God, I agree with your, your word on money. I agree with your word on sexuality. I agree with your word on love and forgiveness. I agree with your word on mercy for the marginalized. I agree with your word and I accept it as true. This is the good soil. And it means agreeing with God over against our opinion. It's to say to God, I, I believe that your word is truer than my own verdict. When I consider myself unforgivable, I accept your word that I'm forgiven, even when it doesn't look like I am. When I consider myself unlovable, I agree with your word over mine. When I consider my priorities or whatever it is, God, I accept your word over mine. Jesus says the good soil listens, hears the word of God, and accepts it. And because of this, we become fruitful. Is this how you treat the word of God? Is your desire to know what God has to say on every area of life? Or can it be sometimes we're like, man, I, I kind of, I think, I feel like I know what God's going to say on a certain thing, so I'd rather just not find out. Maybe do that thing of like forgiveness is better than permission or something like that. And we, and we are hesitant to dig into God's word. But Jesus says the good soil knows that God is good, hears his word and accepts it and bears fruit. To be a follower of Jesus is not that you have to follow Jesus, but that you get to. Even just consider who Jesus was in dying for us. The other day in the car, I was talking with the kids about, I don't know, it was probably something completely irrelevant like Star Wars or whatever. Kids have this way of just moving from like the inane to the profound and then back again and just, just like that. And this was one of those moments where we were talking about whatever. And then they were talking about, we got onto Easter and the topic of Jesus. And then our, our middle child, Zeb, said, um, in terms of the cross, we were just talking about how, how painful that was. Oh, that's how we got onto it. They were asking if teachers can cane kids anymore. I was like, they can't, they can't do that anymore. <laughs> it's, it's fine. If they do, tell us about that because that is serious. And then they were saying, so does, like, does being whipped hurt? I'm like, yeah, of course it hurts. And then one of them said, but it wouldn't have hurt Jesus. 
And I was like, why do you say that? He's like, because he had the power to heal people, so he could have just healed himself. I was like, what a, what a brilliant insight from a child's mind. I, was like, I never thought about the fact that in the entire gospel, Jesus heals so many people and yet never heals himself. And he even says to the crowd, one time you're going to call out to me, physician, heal yourself. And he won't do it. Just think about that. Think about the restraint it would have taken from Jesus, who was the one who had made these watching crowds, who could have, who could have healed himself and instead knew that in order to die for our sin, he had to be fully human. He had to experience the full pain of the cross. And as his back was stinging from the beatings that he'd received and the nails were put through his hands, he did not refuse his Father's will and went through with it. You think, that's Jesus. And you think, if that guy speaks to you and says something to you, it's worth listening to, isn't it? That's why true followers are ones who hear his word and obey. Not perfectly, not always, not often as we should. But in our heart of hearts, there is a desire to follow Jesus because he's the one who went through all of that for me. And if he's called me to do it, what other reason could he possibly have than my joy and his glory? Jesus says, this is what the good soil will be like. They'll hear my word, they accept it, and they'll bear fruit. They'll keep changing in their personal life. They'll keep sharing the word because once you know that Jesus is that good, you want to follow him. It's not that you have to, you get to. Do you know at the end of a challenging year, and as Jacob shared a little bit about Bell before, maybe one of the things that was most encouraging is that everyone who was there in the difficulty in December was still there last week on that final week. And Jesus says that false soil, when tribulation or difficulty comes, will fall away. And look, I can't know the hearts of everyone there fully, of course, One evidence of grace that is encouraging, we're seeing that through difficulties, people can continue to want to hear from Jesus, to listen to him, and to do what he said, even through difficulty, even through disappointment. And that's encouraging. Jesus sees that. He knows that. He loves his people. And there is nothing done for the sake of the Lord Jesus that will be done in vain. There's one encouragement. But as we think about this passage and as we think about it as a church, what we mustn't miss is the call to multiply as followers. That we are meant to grow in our personal life and bear fruit and as church to bear fruit. It's our desire this year to be a healthy multiplying church. Jesus says the good soil followers of him will hear his word and multiply. And after a difficult year like last year, there'd be two, I think there are two mistakes in opposite directions that we could make as a whole church or as church leadership. And it's this. One folly would be to simply rebound. Would be to be like, well, you know, things happen, is what it is. Uh, we'll, just, we'll bounce out again and just start planning again and, and pretend like it never happened. It's true, there were some extenuating and extraordinary circumstances, but there were some things within our control that we want to be sure that we've addressed in going forward. We might be a healthy, multiplying church for the long term. That's going to mean taking serious stock of what happens. So one folly would just be to bounce back without any serious reflection or any serious help in order to reflect on that. The second one would be the folly of being gun-shy. I don't know if that's the right kind of phrase, but you you kind of get what I mean. Churches need to get planted. True followers need to multiply. True churches need to multiply churches. There is a great need, heaven and hell are real, and we're not to shrink back. And so we're called 
to be faithful followers who continue to multiply. And so our desire over this year as a church, as things conclude with Burwood, as some integrate back into church life here or join us from over there, as we think about being a, a healthy church for the long term, we want to regroup and to strengthen that we might be a healthy multiplying church over the long term. And this year, we want to think of as a short-term recovery for long-term effectiveness. You can think about it like this. The Battle of Dunkirk was one of the most significant moments for Allied forces during the war, especially if you underplay that the Russians won it for us. But uh, that's a whole other thing. But at Dunkirk, it, you cannot underestimate how close British forces were to being completely decimated and how, close, how narrow an outcome it would have been if Hitler had just made better decisions, how, how, how decimating that would have been for Allied forces. The retreat itself was an extraordinary military exercise, but even more extraordinary was perhaps the in, insane decisions that the leadership of the German army made in order to allow that to happen. But what happened was once they pulled back, they were able to regroup and strengthen and then press in and win the war. When it came to making a decision about Burwood, our decision was that we were just stretched over too many fronts. And that the wisest decision was to pull back and to regroup that we might be a healthy multiplying church for the long term. And so that's what we've done. And over this year, that's going to mean a couple of things. We held off from doing Onward Fund right at the beginning of the year, which is something that we do each year to help us press forward as a church because we wanted to see where we were landing for the year and then to press on. Now, Onward Fund, if you're here with us, if you're here just visiting, don't worry about this. This is something really for our membership, but I hope this makes sense to you in light of what we've looked at and in what Jesus said. But Onward is a way that we steward our money uh, in order that we might go forward as a church. And it was something that we started last year, which was basically, it's almost like a 13th month in the year. It's something that we were giving towards that was beyond our current budget so that we might be able to grow and to be healthy and to multiply as a church going forward. And over this year, there are a couple of things we want to uh, draw your minds to. Now, there are flyers for this uh, that you can pick up at the back a, a little bit later on. Leah has done battle with our printer to produce those, so I encourage you to grab those. It's, they've been labored over. But there are two things that we really want to direct you towards. And the first is this. Uh, Jacob, who was interviewed here before, uh, is, uh, has been absolutely faithful through this year to the Church of God. And I just want to take a moment just to honor how he and Sarah have navigated this season. So it's been a challenging year for them and really difficult, especially in the lead up to having their first child. And staring down the barrel of an uncertain year with a child on the way, they put the needs of the people in the church first. And they said, we will see this thing through regardless of what happens. And they have. And because of that, God has borne immense fruit through that. The fact that all those people were still there was in no small part due to the effort that they had laid out and the love and the care that they had sown into people. They saw it through to the end. They preserved precious relationships. They desired to honor Christ through it. And so I just want to commend Jacob and Sarah in that. And as Jacob comes back on for three days this year, we want to put some money towards that to subsidize that. We don't know how many will rejoin us from Burwood just yet, but we want to make sure we're in a good position for him to be employed three days a week. And so part of Onward is giving towards that. The other reason Jacob's role will be crucial this year is that if you were with us last week, you know that Gav's taking a sabbatical or extended leave. 
And, and Jake will be a huge part of helping me uh, over that time as well. Now, in terms of just speaking into that a little bit, as we think about the theme of being a healthy, multiplying church for the long term, the part that a, a sabbatical rest plays into that is that it really is strategic rest for the long term. I don't want to be a, a woe is me type pastor. And I, I, hope, I hope you believe me that that's not the case. I would actually rather people don't like me than they feel sorry for me. So whenever I share anything around, around pastoral difficulties, uh, that's the hesitation that I have. And it's also the case, I mean, look, I don't know if you've been in a church context where someone's like, oh, pastoral ministry is so hard, you don't understand how it is or whatever it is. I, I, could, I can imagine in that context it being very difficult for you sitting there being members of the church who have full-time jobs, responsibilities, uh, navigating the difficulties of singleness or marriage or family, as well as a commitment to the church and all of that, it's not easy. And so what I say here about the difficulty of ministry, I hope doesn't undermine that in any way. The call to follow Jesus is difficult regardless of whether you're in full-time pastoral ministry or not. But there are some realities and pressures to full-time leadership in the church that make it unique. A guy called Bill Gaultier says that, uh, that he believes, he says, I cannot state without wavering that the single greatest need of the church today is the restoration of ministers. And he, start, he cites these statistics. It says 90% feel fatigued and worn out every week. 90%, 91% have experienced some form of burnout. 70% have lower self-esteem than when they entered the ministry. 70% fight depression. The average seminary trained pastor lasts only five years in pastoral ministry. It says 80% feel underappreciated and left out and unappreciated by church members. I can happily say the stats are way lower for us. We love you guys. We feel very appreciated. It says over 50% say that the most destructive event in their marriage and family was the day they entered ministry. 80% wish their spouse would choose another profession. Not only that, but often pastors get so preoccupied with the care of others that their own souls suffer. 72% only study the Bible when it comes to preparing for sermons. 70% don't have a close friend. 50% do not regularly meet with an accountability partner or group. 44% don't regularly take a day off. All of these things kind of add up to a picture to say there are unique challenges there that we want to work through. Now, I can happily say that the leadership of this church is not representative of those statistics, but the realities and pressures of ministry are there. And so Gav later this year is going to take us some time clear. And, um, and a big part of that, uh, of us going forward and pressing on as a church, is Jacob stepping up and helping out as well, which has been massive. So as you consider giving towards Onward, and as we did last year, we'll do this over a couple of weeks and give you time to think and to pray about it. And on the 29th, to pledge your giving for the year. We want to invest in strategic rest for the sake of long-term effectiveness. To be a church that is in a healthy position to multiply over the long term. Because if what Jesus said is true, and it is, good soil, hears the word of God and multiplies in our personal life and in terms of mission. So I want to encourage you as you pray through this passage, as you meet in small groups, as you pray through the year, as you consider giving towards onward, may you consider Jesus' words, the call to multiply, that he might as a church strengthen us and help us to press forward for the sake of his holy name because Jesus is too good to keep to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We know that you are God of all. We thank you most of all that you loved us first, that even while we were enemies, you sent Christ to die on our behalf, that we might be forgiven 
and made new and that we might be called your children forever. And we pray, Father, that our desire to honor you would be sheerly for the joy of it, not out of a moral obligation or out of guilt or some false motivation, but as we consider who you are and as what Jesus has done on our behalf, we might just be overwhelmed to know that we are called children of God. Now, Father, we, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would uphold us, and that we would love and uphold one another, that your spirit might work mightily through us, that we might be good soil, and that we might experience the joy of following Jesus wholeheartedly. As we consider how it is that we might respond to your word, may you guide us, may you give us wisdom, and all that you might be glorified. Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.